0: So once again, uh, we're continuing, 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 29, Uh, we're going to get a bit of a running start, get some background as we have uh, juggled these chapters, 27, 28, and then into 29, 30, and we'll be looking at 31 uh, at a future date, but uh, moving the narrative of David as he is about to become king from chapter 27 that uh, Ronaldo preached on back in November, to chapters 29 and 30 as the story continues or as the history of David's life events continue on. We're also coming to the closing chapters of the first book of Samuel and the closing period of the life of Israel's first king, of course, that being King Saul, as he will die in the last chapter, chapter 31, and uh, a rather tragic end to uh, a tragic life. The uh, past few chapters, As we've studied through these past few months, have been focusing more on David, and while Saul has been somewhat in the background, only as he relates or interacts with David, and as the narrative focuses on David once again here in 27 and then into 29, we'll see once again that the Lord is developing David's character, preparing him to be king in the very near future as these 15 years of wandering and, and running from Saul come to a close. Chapter 28, which we looked at just a handful of weeks ago, prepared the way for the death of Saul. It was in that chapter that Saul made that disastrous decision and visit to the witch of Endor, to the medium in the town there of Endor. And there he had Samuel called back from the dead, who did not give him the message he was hoping for. Samuel told him that within 24 hours, Saul would die on the battlefield, his three sons as well would die with him, and the nation Israel would suffer this disastrous defeat at the hands of the Philistines. So we needed chapter 28 and a bit of a a jumble of the storyline in order to set the stage before we moved any further along in the story and picked up with David once again. But we have that background that it was necessary for us, and now we can understand the events that culminate in Saul's death and future messages So, we see the contrast of David's dilemma back in chapter 27, as Ronaldo preached weeks ago and mentioned already, uh, as David ran for the second time to Achish of Gath. We saw that contrasted with chapter 28 and Saul's dilemma, side by side, and we learned that in spite of David being caught among the Philistines and not sure how to get out of that web, uh, there is something far worse than being caught among your enemies, And that is Saul, having been cut off from all communion with God, nothing so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of greatest need that Saul had long ago placed himself beyond the sound of God's voice. And now the only thing he can hear is the gathering army and uh, his own impending death. Recall that in chapter 27... Ronaldo pointed out that there was no reference. You read all the uh, verses there, uh, the 12, 13, 12 verses of chapter 27. <clears throat> There's no reference to the Lord or even of David seeking out the Lord to say, Lord, what should I do? What direction should I go? What path should I take? How can I be kept safe from King Saul? There's no mention of him seeking out the Lord. Instead, what does David do? He consults his own wits, He tries to make his own self-preserving plans. He defects to the Philistines. David had fled, again, the second time to Achish and Gath. Uh, There he settled nearby in Ziklag. We're not exactly sure where Ziklag is. If you look on your maps in the back of your Bibles, there's usually a question mark next to it. We just don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere in the vicinity of Gath. He and his men, his 600 men, along with their wives, their families, their kids, their possessions, probably some livestock as well. And they settled there for over a year. Uh, chapter 27, verse 7 tells us specifically 16 months that they spent in Ziklag. Now, while the Lord delivers David, that we'll see this morning, away from the Philistines, and He sent back to Ziklag, as we'll look at in chapter 29, and preparing for the events of chapter 30, the concurrent events detailed in chapters 28 that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. And 31, and the death of Saul, provide insight about the last hours, again, of Saul's life, specifically the the seance with Samuel, Endor, again, his death, uh, quite the last 24 hours of your life. Having worked through the uh, penman's chronological switcheroo, as we mentioned previously, chapter 28, we pick up again with chapter 29, we find the Philistines have begun to gather and move their chariots north, and they have David in tow, his men. Coming up the Mediterranean coast, and I tried to be the map for you. Remember last time the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River? This is the valley of Esdraelon or the Jezreel Valley. Mount Carmel in my fist, and uh, the Mediterranean coast coming up. You can picture it in the back of your Bibles in the maps if you can't picture my goofy arm in the air. But there they are moving up the Mediterranean coast, and they're coming to Aphek, and it's interesting that that's where they're gathering. Aphek, you recall, back in chapter 4, is where the Israelites thought, hey, let's bring down the ark. Uh, let's bring down our, our lucky charm, if you will. They, they thought that they could use the Lord to get victory. And that's where they lost the ark. And for many years, uh, it was gone. That was some 90 years before uh, this point, I believe, back in chapter 4, uh, quite a, uh, some time ago. But that's where the armies are gathering uh, up in the plain of Sharon, east of the city, uh, coastal city of Joppa. Again, assembling all the Philistine armies together to head up uh, into that valley and down into battle in the valley with their chariots. It's at that point here in Aphek that uh, the Philistines will send David and his men back to Ziklag. And we'll see that in verse 11 of 29 while the Philistines continue on north along that trade route, that way of the sea as it's known up to Caesarea, again east then up over the hills into Megiddo and down into the valley. Uh, This runs down to the Jordan River there. The Philistines, they're going to end up in Shunem, as we read in chapter 28, verse 4, in that valley below uh, Saul and his Israelite army up on the mountain, being able to look down and kind of see them gather as the army is up on Mount Gilboa, providing a good vantage point to safely assess these chariots and their armies. They're not going to come up the hill with their chariots lest they roll, and uh, Saul and his army having a chance to prepare for that battle. But we're still left with the predicament of David from chapter 27 as we pick up in chapter 29, and that of being left with only two poor choices to make. He really, uh, at this point, uh, had two poor choices, two options from which to choose. Having been appointed as bodyguard to King Achish in chapter 28, verse 2, he's left to eventually either choose betrayal of his Philistine benefactor or become a traitor in battle against his own people, the nation of Israel, as they're heading up uh, to Jezreel. And yet chapter 29 shows us once again that the Lord is sovereignly and graciously providing for David and delivering him from the Philistines uh, in spite of his self-reliance that we learned about in chapter 27. David's divine benefactor will then test his faith once again in chapter 30, and finally driving David to his knees once again, calling out to his Lord in yet one more desperate circumstance where only the Lord can direct the right path. So the title of today's sermon really should have some commas in it, and that's my failure for having that not put in the bulletin. But really, the Lord is delivering David, pulling him out of the Philistines into tribulation and through testing, and that is something that we as believers in Jesus Christ can also look forward to. The Lord will deliver us, uh, usually into trials, uh, but through the testing, in and through life and the difficulties of life uh, that are common to man, sometimes extraordinary circumstances. The Lord does deliver us through and uh, sanctifies us and grows our faith We pick up in chapter 28, verse 1, Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Very well, you shall see what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So here we have again Achish, the Philistine king of Gath, where David has fled to escape Saul. He's taken David north with him. Just as well go with me in battle, you and your 600 men. I could use some supplemental forces here. And so Achish has been convinced that uh, David is now the enemy of Saul and the enemy of Israel. We read back in chapter 27, verse 12. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people. Therefore, he'll become my servant forever. Surely he's been disowned and and can't go back to Israel or to Saul uh, or to his people. He'll be mine and my servant for life. But again, uh, he decides that David and his 600-man army will uh, be a good help. But uh, as we'll see, he ends up being sent back. Again, chapter 29, you turn over, continues that story of David as he's amongst the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines marshaling this overwhelming army, this overwhelming force, bringing their various armies together from the major coastal cities. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 29. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek while the Israelites were camping by the spring which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. And then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day. So Achish is... Introducing David, obviously, to the other Philistine lords, while he might have been on the outskirts of Gath, off in Ziklag, now they're gathering together, the other lords of the other major cities, Ashkelon, uh, Ashdod, etc., there on the coast, really in modern day Gaza, uh, are uh, well aware of who David is as they travel north, and it's really no surprise that his reputation precedes him, even as he's with his armed soldiers and following up behind the Philistine armies. The Lord's naturally question David's presence with an army of Hebrew soldiers in close proximity to King Achish serving as his bodyguards. Really, what's going on here? And so Achish defends himself and his choice of bringing David along, saying he's become a trustworthy personal ally. It's all right, you can trust him too. And he is worthy of helping us in this pending battle against Israel. But The Philistines will have none of it. Look at verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, that is to Achish, make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. And do not let him go down to battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? What else? What better way for David to get back in the good graces of the King Saul and of the Israelites than to take some of our heads and head back? And you can almost imagine what they're thinking of even as they say in verse 5, this, Is this not David, of whom they sing in the dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Recall what happened 12-13 years prior to this, back in Samuel 18, reminds us uh, firmly uh, of David's events and those uh, actions taken. Uh, It's just firmly entrenched in the Philistine minds. Goliath's defeat remains a painful reminder in the commander's memory. Uh, The servants of King Achish even had repeated these words himself back uh, in chapter 21, verse 11, when David first fled to uh, Gath from Saul, and he feigned madness before the king Uh, Over the years, David's fame has not yet diminished. The kid, the 15-year-old who slung the uh, stone and beheaded Goliath and held his head up in the air. Here are the commanders. They're going to do the same thing to us. What uh, better way could he uh, endear himself, uh, ingratiate himself to King Saul and Israel? So, in the end, the Philistines, they're still unwilling to have David go into war uh, with them. On their side. And so we have verse six. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright. You're going out, you're coming in with me, and the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you're not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore, return and go in peace, that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines. So Achish, he calls David most diplomatically, dismisses his bodyguard. And it's the other lords, it's the other commanders, it's the other uh, kings of Gath that uh, really are not willing to have you join us in battle. So go ahead and, and head your way. What does David say in verse 8? David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may go, may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And we see the feebleness of David's feigned argument here as he comes before King Achish. He's just repeating exactly what King Achish already said. Already stole it. I haven't found anything wrong in you. There's, you're blameless in my sight, as far as I'm aware. And uh, we see David uh, putting on his now refined acting skills and feigning indignation. His half hearted plea is just putting up a facade before the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord. Recall in chapter 27 that David had been going out on those private raids, unbeknownst to Achish, with his men against the Philistine allies, the other uh, cities in the area, in the wilderness, uh, not Judean uh, cities, killing men and women alike, leaving no survivors, lest they bring back to the Philistines word of what David was doing. So here's David, verse 8, acting as though he's filled with indignation, feebly protests, his having been wronged by Achish. uh, Perhaps we don't know. It could have been that David's intentions were to, in fact, go into battle and then turn and be an ally to the Israelites. We don't know. Uh, But Achish told David that he must go back. Achish can't afford to displease his other peers. He can't lose face amongst the other commanders, the lords of the Philistines, with uh, risking David's presence. So he sends him back. Verse 9, Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Boy, he has him convinced, doesn't he? Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us into battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. There's no alternative. Achish reiterates his perception of David's innocence, but he has to go back to Ziklag. There's no other choice. So, David's deliverance from his predicament has finally come. Awfully exciting, isn't it? Uh, he's uh, been dismissed from the presence of King Ahab or King Achish. <clears throat> you can almost see David trying to hide the enthusiasm on his face or maybe the relief of his countenance. Uh, we don't know how he reacted, but uh, in quite the pickle, uh, again, we don't know whether he was going to actually turn on the Philistines uh, or if he was uh, trying to figure out maybe in his own mind, Lord, what am I going to do? How do I get out of this pickle? Either way, uh, they now uh, have yet some danger for uh, at least a few more hours as they have to wait one more night, David and his men, uh, as the word spreads amongst his 600-man army, uh, being delayed from leaving until the morning so they can't exactly jump up and down for joy and finally our deliverance has come. We don't have to stand against and kill our brothers in battle. Uh, We can go home. <clears throat> so uh, here they are having to camp out one more night with the Philistine army before they head back early in the morning. Of course, then verse eleven, David arose early. He and his men to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So they part ways in verse eleven. No doubt, David is getting up early. All right, let's pack up, you know, whatever tents or provisions we have, and uh, let's go ahead and head back home to Ziklag, while the Philistines are going to continue on up to meet King Saul, as we've already mentioned. We uh, read back in chapter 28, verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. So again, we see David is being delivered from his divided loyalties, and he heads back home to Ziklag, while the Philistines continue their journey to battle. They gather their armies in Shunem, in the valley below the Israelites, camped on Mount Gilboa, and Saul visits the medium of Endor. He himself is delivered, but not to life, like David. He's delivered to the grave, along with his sons and his defeated army. We come into then chapter 30, and it records additional and significant life events for David. In spite of God delivering him from serving alongside King Achish in this battle, a tragedy has come upon the wives, the children, the livestock of David and his men. While they were gone, the Amalekites come up. They attack the city of Ziklag, where David and his men had settled for the past year, from which they themselves were launching raids and going out on Israel's neighboring enemies. But David and his armed men are off, playing bodyguard, serving as bodyguards to King Achish up in Aphek. So the Amalekites sweep through Ziklag. They take men, women, children. uh, all captive, whatever men were left, who aren't able to go up into battle. They take spoil from the city, and they light the rest on fire. Uh, Such a great loss for both David and his men. It could be uh, just a slight payment, if you will, as the Lord is reminding uh, David, just reminding him to not put his trust in his escape or his refuge, his physical refuge, but to put his refuge in the Lord. Now, it uh, would have been a three-day journey from Aphek up the coast uh, back down to Ziklag or from Ziklag up where David uh, left the Philistines and then three days back to Ziklag. And so chapter 30 opens up in verse 1, "...it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag." So they were raiding through the wilderness, the Negev, the southern area of Judah, uh, likely going even into the land of the Philistines. Again, their army was gone as well, so hey, we just as well raid their cities and take much spoil. And they had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire, verse 2, and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. Then David, when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, Their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And when David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices, they wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Ever wept to the point you just couldn't weep anymore. Here they are wailing for the loss of their loved ones. So David and his men, they've been away for almost a week, at least three days up, three days back. You can imagine marching three days in a row up, three days back, um, not being at home. Uh, I don't know how many of you camp out for a full week at times, but it's nice to get back home, right? So they're weary already from the marching, traveling warriors deprived of battle. We didn't get our blood. We didn't get the action we were hoping for. Uh, looking forward to at least being back with their families and get home uh, there in Ziklag. And yet, what an amazing disappointment to possibly see some remnants of smoke rising in the distance and only to find your hometown burned and everyone gone, not a, not a sound, no one left behind. So this ensues, this great wailing, this weeping on the part of David and his men. And even in verse 5, now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelites. So David's family also has been taken captive. Uh, it's, it's not the only problem he faces, though. Look at verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. All David's men, they've discovered their own wives, sons, and daughters taken captive as well. Uh, His own men are ready to mutiny. It's just not a really good day. He should have, of course, who else do you blame? He's your leader, he's the one that called you away from home. He's responsible. David's the leader, he's the commander. He should have taken such a possibility into account, planned for it, maybe left some of us behind. But uh, his men are so embittered. They're ready to take their anger and wrath out on David by stoning him to death. Now, Remember the character of some of these men. Many of those who had come out from the various cities of Israel to join themselves to David are not exactly men of the highest character. Uh, As we'll read about the wicked and worthless men later down in verse 22 where, David will have further problems as the events unfold in chapter 30. But all these uh, wicked and worthless men among those who went with David uh, when he fled to the land of the Philistines, a lot of those decided to go over to David. They weren't godly men who were like, hey, here's the anointed one, let's follow and support him. They were men who had their own troubles and their own problems in Israel that they were running from. So it was a good chance for them to get out and run away, align themselves with David. And naturally, some of these men that David has as a part of his rebel roving band are men of worthless character. Perhaps good soldiers, but men of worthless character nonetheless. So here, David's problems have multiplied. He was on his way up to fight in battle against Israel as part of the Philistine army. He was sent back our town, our wives burned, our wives and children hauled off, taken captive. Uh, Quite the predicament. I've never been in this circumstance, neither of you likely. Uh, an amazing thing uh, to for David to have to bear up under. And his men, on top of it all, are seeking to kill him. Uh, you had 600 men behind you, and now they're like, oh, let's get rid of this guy, let's grab rocks and start throwing them. And just keep in mind that it is in this context that David's real character is revealed we didn't read the last part of verse 6 look at it now but david strengthened himself in the lord his god but david strengthened himself in the lord his god all these mounting troubles these mounting trials that are uh, coming up upon david and on his shoulders who else is he going to turn to where else can he go his family's been taken captive his men are talking about killing him He's got his own grief, his own sorrow on top of the responsibility and accountability for the disaster. So he strengthens himself in the Lord. This sentence is very important. What does it not say, even as we're looking in first hour, what the Holy Spirit doesn't do in, uh, in helping us understand God's Word? Well, here we look at an example. What is it that David did not do? He didn't pull himself together and draw on his inner reserves and speaking positive words to himself and manifesting some success as the foolishness of the world today grabs on to. I'm greater than this mere trial. I can handle it. I'll get a hold of the situation. No. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It is that relationship with his God that enables David to stand. And to do what is necessary in this situation. And just a matter of application or lesson for us. You don't know when this day of trial might be coming for you. Are you prepared for it? Do you have such a relationship with the Lord your God that you can stop? In the midst of a mounting trial that looks like the world is falling in around you and it's unraveled. And find your strength in the Lord. Do you know him to be sufficient today? So that in that time of trial, you will find him truly sufficient to provide for you. Keep all these things in mind. It looks like the world is collapsing around him. What else, Lord? What else is going to happen? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to uh, fall ill? What? I'm in a foreign land. You know, what else could happen? I'm hiding among the enemies of my God, my people. And now... You have allowed my wives to be captured. The families of my soldiers have been captured. city is burned down. Only men now are uh, trying to kill me. It's more than I can bear. We don't read about that. Simply, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And We read in verse 7, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Because he is strengthened in the Lord, he takes proper action. He goes to Abiathar the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So, Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David is once again driven to bow before the Lord, bow before the feet of his creator, his provider, his savior. He calls for Abiathar the priest. Now, what, Lord? What is your will? What should I do? Uh, Again, it seems that a, a search must be undertaken to retrieve their families. That much is known. They have nothing else to do but to go and get their families back, but they don't know whether they're alive or not. They're not here. So they're not slain yet. David wants to be sure that it is what the Lord wants them to do. And so Abiathar comes with the ephod to discern God's will in the matter. In verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. David is very specific in his prayer. He inquires of the Lord if they should begin the chase or not, and if they will catch up to them or not, wanting to know if victory is even in the Lord's will for David and his men. We see what's going on, that God is further molding and shaping David, developing his character, driving him to depend upon the Lord. And God's plan here is to establish David as the righteous, humble, obedient, and just king, to sit on... The throne from which eventually, as we all know, even as we just celebrated in December, this dynasty will produce the Messiah of Israel. So we look at David and we admire a man of his character. We disdain men with the character of Saul. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with the kids' song in Sunday school Dare to be a Daniel. Well, dare to be a David. But we have to remind ourselves that daring to be a David comes with hardship. Daring to be a Daniel comes with hardship. It took years of adversity for David to become king, again, approximately 15 years. The kinds of difficult, tragic situations that David had to go through to develop his character and build him into the man of God that indeed he was. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a trial. It made David who he was and who he, God wanted him to be, more importantly. You come back to the New Testament, if you would. Turn to Romans in chapter 5. It has always been God's plan to develop his people through trials. When we look at Romans chapter 5 in the opening verses, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest need that we have has been met. If, in fact, we are children of the Lord, if we are truly submitted to him, uh, we have peace with our Creator. Verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, into His favor, this unmerited favor that He shows to us, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, not only the good and fun and great and shiny things, this salvation, His grace we've obtained and the glory of God that we look forward to, but verse 3, not only this, we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And there's a a cycle here and a process that we can each see as the Lord sanctifies us and brings us through these trials. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Paul writes, we exult in our tribulations, not because we like to suffer, but because we, because we want to develop perseverance. We don't like suffering, but we know that we need to persevere. We know that we need to grow stronger and bear up under the various trials of life. And that perseverance will enable us to have that proven character, which will sharpen our hope in that future divine appointment, being in His glorious presence, keeping our focus heavenward and upward on what is lying ahead for us. But this all happens through what? Trials and tribulations. There's no roses and daisies and care bears and skittles and unicorns or whatever, you know, rainbows and easy-going life. It's trials and tribulation. It's hard. Life is tough for each and every one of us in various different ways. It may be possible for a good man to, for a man to become good with little difficulty, but it is impossible to be a great man without going through great difficulties. You want to be greatly used of the Lord? Then be ready to go through great trials and great tribulations. Just recall to mind James chapter 1, verse 2 and following, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, that is, mature, complete, lacking nothing. We want to grow in Christ we want to be mature in our walk and our abiding in Him so that we can be steadfast and persevering and strengthened in a hope that lies before us all the more. That is what God uses to develop maturity, to sanctify you and me. He could have removed Saul from the scene years prior and spared David these 15 years of suffering, hardship, and difficulty, but David wouldn't have been ready to be the king that God wanted him to be. And we might say, well, yeah, but my circumstances, they're different. They're a bit harder than even David's. Really. Of course, they are different. We know that. But God brings in His sovereign plan those trials into David's life that were necessary to develop David. But what about you and me? We have our own unique, as James said, multifaceted trials that we encounter in life to... Make you and me who he has called you and I to be. These are necessary uh, to develop us as the sons and daughters of God. What a blessing it is for us to consider Romans 15 verse 4 and we, we look back and see these different events of history written in earlier times for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It does give us hope to look back and to see God providing for David. And knowing that he will provide for us just the same. But put yourself back in David's shoes. He didn't have hindsight. We can look back, but he can't. He's he's looking forward. Lord, where do I go? Where do I place my next foot? What is the path upon which I must go? His trials are getting to be very serious. His life is on the line. He has to face even more from his own soldiers at a time when his own wives have been carried away captive. To whom can David turn? but to the Lord. And we uh, come back to 1 Samuel 30. And again, just reminded David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. God continues to teach, teach David these many things in these days prior to his coronation, preparing him to be a more effective servant of the Lord. These lessons that David still shares with you and I as we read the book of Psalms, they find their setting in these turbulent times of David's life. And we learn how vital these years are as we read through the great psalms of David, reminding us of God's great grace, His delivering power, psalms that we turn to under pressure and in trials and difficulty. While it may have been a very difficult time for David, it was a time that God was using to sanctify David, and of course in turn to bless us as He wrote various psalms. You can just write down, uh, if you haven't already, jot down there's a I've got eight or nine here listed, Psalm 18, 34, 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, 63, and Psalm 142. There may be others that he wrote that were not preserved or others that we do not know from the title given that just don't give us enough information. But as we read each of those Psalms, we can see uh, as David cries out to the Lord, I'm oppressed on all sides, but Lord, you deliver me. And I look forward to offering thank offerings in your presence. That hope that he has that's steadfast in the Lord. It's a good reminder for us when we too become frustrated with the difficulties and trials, tribulations of family, church, work, even trials of our own health that come and go, sometimes don't go. We can take a look back at a man like David. David. And realize the key role that trials and difficulties played in his life. And also play in our progressively sanctified lives. Consider how often we become confused in the midst of the trial. We're just not thinking clearly. Our heart is not in the right place. And we don't realize the times that our lives seem most difficult. Hardships, they're pressing in. Pain increases. But little do we realize that the Lord is actually changing us. And making us more like Christ and less like ourselves. These are good days for us to be in, to be uh, producing much fruit, times that God is using in great ways, even to bless others uh, while He brings glory to His name. So while David is here occupied with survival, now he has no home even to go into. Uh, God was using these times to reveal His Scriptures that we can read even some 3,000 years later and be encouraged in the darkest times of our own lives. Through all these psalms, we see God developing David's character. How is the Lord developing your character today? Be thankful for David's trials that enabled him to write such scriptures. We come back to chapter 30. David and his men, they're having a very difficult day as they head out to rescue their families. We come back to chapter 30 and verse 9. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, or Bezor, and where those left behind remained. Two hundred men stay behind as they're too exhausted. You can only imagine. He's uh, starting to lose guys little by little here. Here's a third of his army that has to stop from the six days of travel having lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep, as we read in verse 4. It's uh, no wonder that they just can't drive their bodies any further, even though I, I, got to go find my wife, kids, whatever uh, has been taken. And we just get a, a glimpse here into what David and his men have been through these past few days. A third of his army has to stay behind. They just cannot go. Verse 10, but David pursued he and 400 men for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor remained behind. So they leave some of their supplies that they had with them. Where are they going to leave them? In Ziklag? Uh it's vulnerable just as well take their supplies with them that they had for the last week. And so they, they head out, but they have to stop, and these 200 men uh, are there. And this is actually a blessing in disguise that later on we'll see these wicked and worthless men cannot even see. But if you have two-thirds of your guys being left behind, you can leave some of the unnecessary baggage. You can go, okay, strip down to just what I need, just my armor, just my sword, whatever, my bow, spear, whatever it is I need, my shield... Uh, not, I don't need to carry a 100-pound rucksack or whatever it is. I can leave some things behind. Now we can move on further. Let's catch up to these men. Uh, so it is a blessing in disguise. Continuing in verse 11. Now they found an Egyptian in the field as they head off from the brook Bezor. And they find an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate, and they pri- provided him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of fig cake, two clusters of raisins, and he ate, and his spirit was revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Imagine how thirsty he was. Verse 13, David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? The slave answers, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago we made a raid on the Negev and on the Karathites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And the slave answers, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. So the Israelites, they find this abandoned, sick Egyptian slave They feed him, they give him drink, and they ask him, Hey, can you help us out? Take us to the Amalekites. Of course, he would know the way that they came in and the likely way that they might even be returning home with their spoils. And so the slave agrees, and David spares his life, and he guides them onward again. We see the gracious hand of God, great grace. What has David done to earn this other than turning to the Lord and just saying, Lord, what would you have us do? A bit of a grace here as he makes provision for David and his men to find the Amalekites. We continue on in verse 16, when he had brought him down, that is the slave brings David and his men down, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken, both from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David and his men—they come down to the Amalekites. They catch up to him finally. You can imagine how much faster David and his four hundred men can go, having left their baggage behind. And here these Amalekites have women and children and cattle, or whatever else they stole, and burdened down with all these—their the, spoil. Not exactly moving very fast. They likely didn't get too far. But here they are, uh, totally caught by surprise. The Amalekites—this is party time. Can you imagine how uh, they were thinking. This boy, sure was easy. We went over to the Philistines. We got their spoils. We went into Judah. We got their spoils. David wasn't around to protect. Look at all these spoils. Amazing. Uh, but they are no longer an armed force. These Amalekites, they are a partying force, likely, likely a uh, drunken force, eating, drinking, dancing because of all the great spoil they would taken from the cities of the Philistines, the cities of Judah, as we just read there in verse 16. And just keep that in mind. As we read about David distributing the spoils, he has more than just Ziklag to give back. There's much spoils from the Philistines to give to those in Judah. We continue in verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight, that is the evening, until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. Note the emphasis in these verses, 17 through 20. Who's being called out? David. Verse 17, David slaughtered them. Verse 18, David recovered all the Amalekites had taken. And though it's not repeated, his name isn't repeated. It's implied David rescued his two wives. Verse 20, David captured all the sheep. And this is David's spoil. The victory came to David, the very one who just hours before... The day before, his men were ready to stone to death. And through this, David, uh, God brings a great victory. Uh, Again, consider, though, the character of David. In light of this great victory, who does David give all the glory to? God. God and all that he had done. Verse 21, when David and his men, David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Bezor. They went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. Where's my wife? Where's my kids? And when then David approached the people and greeted them. So David and his 400 men, they returned from this great victory over the Amalekites, leaving no one but these 400 young camel riders to head off. They come back with all the families that they had rescued, all the spoil that they had taken. They come back to these 200 men who were exhausted and had... Presumably gains some strength here from the brook uh, over the last twenty-four hours, as David and his men were off, slaughtering the Amalekites. And they come out to meet them. And of course there's great celebration. And in verse 22. All the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that they that we have recovered. Except to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. It's not enough that they didn't go out with us. Now, okay, we'll give them what's theirs and they can go away. They're not worthy even of being in our presence. Talk about wicked and worthless men. In verse 23, then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. The Lord who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. Again, we see what David doesn't do. He doesn't take the credit. He doesn't claim the victory. He doesn't claim the right to decide who gets the spoil. No, the Lord gave us the victory, and so these 200 men that remain behind with the baggage, for good reason, as we highlighted already, they deserve a share in what the Lord has given. Uh, Just like we went into battle, uh, they deserve a share for staying back with the supplies. In the end, it's all of the Lord. We didn't win or lose because they were or were not with us. Uh, They deserve... Part of the spoil as well. The Lord has provided. Mention these wicked and worthless men in verse 22, trying to take the credit. Look at the words that they used. We went out. We did it. They didn't. Uh, they shouldn't get any of the spoils. That's my decision right there. Executive decision made. Well, David is a bit more. Hold on a minute there. Guys, let's uh, consider that the Lord gave it to us. Uh, it's really the Lord's provision for us to dole out, not necessarily for us to decide whether we should keep it or not. Continues in verse 24, David speaking to his men, instructing them, bringing them along, helping them understand the right path. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as is the share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, their share shall be alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and ordinance for Israel, to this day. Who will listen to you in this matter? Here's what we're going to do. You listen to me. Here's the path forward. And it sets forth an ordinance that uh, really a pattern for the Israeli army going forward. That principle uh, was even recorded in uh, Second Maccabees, a, a book written in that intertestament period between the Old and New Testament, not part of the canon. Uh, this principle continued all the way down, recorded even in that book some thousand years after these events. The principle stood So we read verses 26 through the end and close out the chapter. And now, when David came to Ziklag, they get back home. He sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, with a message. Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, to those who were in Jatir, to those who were in Aror, to those who were in Asifmoth, to those who were in Eshtoma, Eshtomoah, those who were in Rakhal, those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, to those who were in Hormah, to those who were in Ashen to those who were in Athak. Verse 31, to those who were in Hebron and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. David not only distributes the spoil amongst his men, But he sends a portion to the cities of Judah. Of course, they had also been ravaged by the Amalekites, along with the cities of the Philistines, as they were off, heading north, leaving their towns vulnerable. So David takes a portion of this spoil and sends it to the various cities of Judah. And this solidifies their support of David as he is showing his generosity or his fitness to be their king, if you will. And of course, not to give away the whole story, but in the future, as David is first Uh, crowned or anointed as king. It is Judah who comes around him first and then sometime later the rest of the nation, Israel. And again, something to note here, even in verse 31, David sends some spoil to those who are in Hebron, and that is the place where David will be anointed as king uh, when he formally assumes the kingship after, after Saul's pending death. He'll rule from Hebron as the capital of Israel for about seven and a half years or so, before He moves it on into Jerusalem and establishes that as the center of Israel. And so we see through these two chapters where we started and the title of today's sermon, God delivered David into tribulation but through testing. And we can expect the same. Just some observations for us to note as we take God's Word with us today and settle it firmly in our minds that we might be faithful doers of it, consider that our actions have long-term impact. Big or small, your actions have a long-term impact. In fact, it could be that many small decisions and actions build into something quite large. I think of my kids' Legos, a lot of little itty-bitty pieces that end up in this massive tank or ship or whatever it is, a lot of little pieces, little decisions have lasting impact in the lives that we live. We see that in chapter 29 and verse 5, recalling David's history. The Philistines, they're very aware of the testimony of David. And it goes back to his defeat of Goliath. They don't look at David as a man hiding and fleeing from his enemies as he is today in the story here. They remember Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Your actions have long-term impact. Secondly, God works in marvelous ways, or as we read in the New Testament, causes all things to work together for good, no matter what your trial in life may be. Health, relationship, poverty, riches, God causes all these things to work together for good. And as we read through chapter 27, again, we're left with the question, what's going to happen to David when he goes to war along the Philistines? He's a declared servant. He's going to go with those armies, uh, engage in the armies against Israel, against Saul, What's God, or what's David going to do? And here God intervenes on David's behalf so that the Philistines are even unwilling to take him all the way up to even meet on the battlefield. He's sent home before they even get there. And God causes all things to work together for good. In fact, David, he was never even given an opportunity to turn on the Philistines. We don't know what his scheme was, but God had already determined the destruction of Saul his sons, and the armies of Israel. David cannot be a deliverer, but God delivers David and his men, removes them from the battlefield. God works and causes all things to work together for good. It's hard for us to see that in the midst of the trial. Thirdly, the center of God's will. I want to be in the middle of what God has for me. I don't want to be on the fringes, you know, with the chances of making a mistake. I want to be in the middle, right? That's where we want to be. Well, the center of God's will is sometimes a place of trial and difficulty. And that's where we opened up uh, chapter 30 in verses 1 through 5. Ziklag being burned, the inhabitants captured. Uh, Why did God allow that to happen? He could have spared Ziklag from the Amalekites, but David is in the center of God's will, though he is in a miserable situation. Um, His men turning against him, but he's right where God wants him to be. God is doing a work in David's life. The only right next thing to do is exactly what he did then in verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When you don't know what to do next, turn to the Lord. See what God says. You don't have to sort this out on your own. You don't have to scheme or manipulate or, you know, what if if I did this? Maybe this will happen and try to play a game of chess. David turns to the Lord. He seeks wisdom on the right course of action in verse 8. What am I to do? So strengthen yourself in the Lord. Seek His wisdom. That's it. It's quite the simplistic formula. It's very hard for us to do sometimes. The best thing you can do in times of trial is to go before the Lord in prayer. Cry out to Him. Even as I listed all those psalms, you see David crying out to the Lord. I don't know what to do. What is the right course of action? I have to act, but I need your direction. What am I to do? We should not just be flying off in the passion of the moment and doing what seems right to us. Really, we need to find out what would the Lord have us do. Last point before we close. Consider David's character when he comes back with the spoils to the 200 men at the Brook of Bezor. And look at that event. True, True godly character includes stability and steadfastness. Sometimes in our trials, we turn to the Lord. Lord, I need you. I just don't know what to do. I'm lost. I don't know what the next step would be. But in our victories, when things are going well, we seem to forget the Lord. Okay, I got this, Lord. Thanks. Appreciate the assist. I'll take it from here. We forget that the Lord is the one who has brought the blessing. And that should not be so. It is the Lord who brings victory. It's the Lord who brings blessing. It's been the hand of the Lord in it all as we see the life of David. Unfold from his youth even to this point in the narrative. He remains a fleeing enemy of the still living Saul. He's not dead yet. But David is giving all the honor and glory to what God is doing. And we saw that repeated in Psalm after Psalm. You can uh, read through those that I listed out. When David is in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul, hiding from Saul, trying to do whatever he can. In his human responsibility before God to keep his feet moving. At one point, remember, running around a mountain and getting on the other side of the hill from Saul and just cat and mouse game. Still moving. But in the victories, true godly character includes stability and steadfastness. Are we being tossed about or are we firmly established in the Lord? In the trials that the Lord has for you today, find joy in them. Be thankful. See the Lord's hand at work. Look forward to the point on the end of the trial where you will be different than you are today, more Christ-like and less like yourself, but more like your Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your grace, even as we saw once again in this passage, your provision. You're a God of your word, a God of discipline, yes, and yet a God of blessing. Thank you for the testimony of these two lives, of Saul and of David, the witness that that is for us or maybe even against us even today. Thank you for the life of Saul that should cause us to grow in a fear of who you are, to grow in a right relationship with you, to see what a bad example brings, what a tragedy, what a waste, what rebellion to think that there is any future in disobeying the living God. Lord, we thank you for the life of David, his faithfulness to you. We thank you even in these passages, these verses showing us how your hand was upon him, around him, over him, protecting him. You never forsook him. You never left him alone. And even as Jake mentioned this morning, what a promise is ours to rest in your provision your salvation for us and yet in the most lonely of places where david was he was safe might have been in a cave but in fact he was in your hand protected lord your wings over him as we read he was safe and secure as he could ever be thank you lord that david could testify and write down and give us the psalms that we even have today that he found his satisfaction in you Even in the most barren places, his real thirst was for you, Lord. May we we be encouraged to follow that same path. As in your grace, you bring these trials and difficulties into our lives, some which seem overwhelming. Give us courage. Lord, may we see in every trial an opportunity to find you sufficient to let go more and more of those things which so easily entangle us and find You all the more sufficient, to trust and grow in that faith and trust in You, the God who has all things under control, the God who's working perfectly Your purposes for us and developing our character, preparing us for glory beyond compare. Thank You, Father, for the riches of these words, chapters 29 and 30, the truth that we can read in your scriptures. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.